Thank you for checking out this resource from Grace Chapel in Skinny Atlas, New York. If you'd like to find more like this, or you'd like to learn a little bit more about our church, you can do so by going to gconline.org. And now let's jump into this week's message. My wife, Claudia, and I are from, uh, again, from Boulder. We have three kids. Our youngest child, one of our celebrations is our youngest daughter just graduated from college in May. So we're done with that phase of life. And, uh, you know, when someone writes a book, you know, Pastor Barry said I wrote a book, the other half of church, and, you know, a lot of times when someone writes a book, they're this expert, they get this expertise and genius, and I want to, like, compress that into the book and so that you can share in my expertise because I'm so good at what we're talking about and all this kind of stuff. And this is not that book. (laughs) This book was really written from a place of confusion and frustration and not understanding. And then God met me in it, and I'm just passing you on along what God passed on to me. And so this morning, I'm actually going to talk about my confusion as a pastor, as a pastor of discipleship, and how God used that confusion. Because I started seeing a pattern in my church with some of the trainings and things that we did to help people grow as disciples of Jesus. And uh, it's the pattern that kind of started troubling me and made me scratch my chin and wonder, I don't know if I'm understanding things. And it's that sometimes our normal Christian practices we think of that help us grow, sometimes they work really well, and sometimes it seemed to me as a pastor they didn't work well. And I was kind of embarrassed to actually admit that, so I kind of just kind of ignored it for a while, but I kept seeing it over and over again. Or even I would see these Christian practices, they would work really well for certain kinds of life's difficulties and problems, but there's other kind of problems I would run into and the people I'm working with are running into that, it, that the Bible alone just didn't seem to be enough or the things that we normally think of that help us as Christians. So it got to a point where I had a lot more questions than I had answers as a pastor. One of my big questions is, why don't we see more radical transformation of character in our churches, right? We see some, definitely, but why don't we see more? And why don't I see more radical change in my own life, right? I, I was seeing and running into some stubborn areas of my life that seemed almost resistant to change, at least using the normal practices I would use. And I'm thinking, am I just, as a pastor, am I missing something, right? So what are we going to talk about today a little bit is what do we do when the usual Christian answers or prescriptions don't seem to work, don't seem to change us, transform us. I'm not implying that our Christian practices don't work. Studying the Bible for me has been so transformational in my life in prayer and meeting together in community and small groups and times in silence of solitude and going into nature and all sorts of things. Um, but, but in some areas of my life, in some kinds of problems, it seemed like I'm missing big pieces of the puzzle, things that I haven't maybe even thought of. And so this is big stuff, so let's quickly start with a prayer and ask God to guide us during this time. Father, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that uh, you've given your son to us and Jesus that you've sent your Holy Spirit into live, live in us, and we thank you that we're not alone in this room. We are so thankful that you are with us right now, that we are together, and that we are with you. And we welcome you in everything we do, everything we think. May the meditations of our hearts, all of our thoughts be pleasing to you in your sight. And we ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So what do we do when the usual Christian answers don't seem to work or don't seem to be enough? That was a question I was afraid to actually address because seemed, it seemed like something was wrong with me. But the more I started trying to help the people around me grow and myself as well, the more I kept running into this word sometimes, that these things work sometimes and other times they don't seem to work or they don't get traction. It's like in a Colorado snowstorm, it just starts spinning your wheels out and they don't seem to work. I got to the point where I would find myself sitting in my, my office at the church, staring at a dry erase board, and at looking for answers, looking for a picture, and finally I had to come to the conclusion that I, you know, I'm almost like, I'm not sure I know how to do my job as a pastor. And God, it seemed, took that as a prayer, right? Dear God, I don't know how to do my job as a pastor. Amen. And I think he took that as a prayer because very quickly, maybe a month or two later, I got a phone call from a man who doesn't even go to our church. He was visiting us from Denver, trying to figure out what our church is doing. You know, they were doing some things like that in their church. And he saw some of the discipleship stuff I was doing, the trainings and a book I wrote and some other stuff. And he said, Michael, I'd love to have lunch with you. And so we met. And he was good friends with a discipleship kind of Christian guru. His name's Dallas Willard. And, uh, and he said, you know, we've run into these same kinds of things too. Like sometimes it seems like there's something missing. Why don't we start having lunch together every month and start to unpack and study this and seek God together, right? And I pulled another friend of mine who was a pastor in, so the three of us would meet, and we'd met every month. And it was in one of those lunch meetings talking about discipleship where my friend Bob said this funny thing. He says, you know, one area of discipleship I think we're missing or we're not studying as we're doing this study of discipleship is, you know, how God designed the brain and what impact that has. Now, Bob was 80-something years old, and what he said made no sense to me. And so I thought maybe he was having a senior moment. And I kind of just ignored what he said and went on to a different topic. Thankfully, he was stubborn, and the next month when we met, he said it again. I said, he says, I think... You know, we're ignoring the whole area of neuroscience and how God developed our brains and how that might, what that might relate to us becoming and growing as disciples of Jesus and loving well and thriving and healing. And I said, Bob, I have no idea what you're talking about, brain science and discipleship. That makes no sense to me. What do you mean by that? And Bob says, he kind of got this smile on his face, and he says, well, Michael, why don't I invite my friend Jim Wilder to our meeting, our lunch next month? I think he can answer your questions better than I do. Better than, I'm, better than I'm able. And so we met a month later. We all sat down to lunch. Jim Wilder was there with us. He looked across the table at me and said, Michael, what do you want out of this time together? And I shared some of the frustrations as a pastor of discipleship that I just shared with you. Kind of like vomited on the table, right? Because I was frustrated. And, uh, and he said an interesting thing there. He said, Michael, I think it might under help you to understand a little bit about how God designed our brains to mature us to grow our character, to heal us, and help us thrive as human beings. And I had been, at that point, a Christian 30, 35 years. I'd gone to seminary. I'd been a missionary in Argentina. I'd been an elder and a pastor for 15-something years. And in all that time, nobody had ever said anything like that before to me. And so I was all ears because I was in this state of openness because of the frustration I had, Right? And so what I found is from brain science, we see the fingerprints of God and how he designed us to grow as his children. 
And many of these skills we learn from brain science that help us as disciples of Jesus, um, they're also all over the Bible. I did a full reread of the Bible after learning a lot of these skills, looking for it, and it's everywhere. We just miss it. We don't know it's there. And they've largely lost importance in our culture and our society and church, especially over the last three to 500 years. Some of these lost skills are the importance of tuning, attuning to each other and showing compassion and how to bond at a deep level in a way that's very secure and healthy and learning to regulate our emotions and stay relational even when emotions start to get big. Guess what? We see Jesus doing this all the time. He does it so well. And how to help other people when they're stuck in big emotions in a way that truly helps them and actually doesn't make the problem worse. And learning to live out of our true identities and the hardest thing we do that Jesus has called us to do is to love the most difficult people in our lives that almost feel like enemies. That's the hardest thing Jesus has given us to do. And all of these are very informed by neuroscience because Jim, when we were talking around the table and I asked him for more information, he bent over and he pulled out a plastic brain out of his bag. He unhooked the two halves of the brain and started showing us how the brain actually processes our life and experience and uses that to, to mature us and what the brain, God designed our brain to need in order for us to grow as his disciples. And he said, we, have, we really have two brains. We don't have one brain, we have two brains, a left and a right brain, and they focus on different things, although they work together. And the, the right brain is the brain, is the relational, social, emotional brain. It's the most powerful of the two brains. It's, it runs very, very fast, and it's a lot of it's pre-conscious. So, you know, have you ever just known something, but you didn't know why you knew it? And then maybe 15 seconds later, you start to get some words, well, that means your right brain's way faster. It knows something, but your left brain can't explain it yet. It has to take a while to catch up, and then finally you can go, oh, I think this is what's going on here. Because our left brain is kind of like what we think in popular culture is the brain. It's problem-solving, putting words and explaining things. It's uh, believing the right things. It's our willpower, making strategies for things. That's all left brain stuff. Right brain is these really fast emotional regulation and learning how to bond and love well, be compassionate, and knowing who we are, our identity. And then Jim Wilder said a very interesting thing. He said, one of the reasons we don't see more transformation in our churches is we largely focused in our discipleship, focused on the left brain, which those are important things, you know, like believing the right things and making better choices and stuff like that. But we've largely ignored the right brain, and the right brain's actually where the heavy lifting is done in discipleship. And so for us to have communities that regularly transform, we need to have a full brain discipleship. And, uh, and, you know, when he said that, I wasn't quite sure what he meant. And so what we're going to do is going to jump into a scripture that's going to highlight a really important thing. Because what I asked Jim Wilder was that, well, give me an example. What's, the, what's some right brain re, uh, Christian practice that we don't know we've lost over the last 500 years that is very, very important to us if we're going to grow as his disciples? Okay. And, and so what we're going to do is follow Jesus in a story, because like me as a, a pastor of discipleship, Jesus ran into people with all sorts of problems, very, very different problems. And sometimes he answered in kind of the way we think, the usual Christian answers, and helped in those ways. But other times he did things was like, why did he do that? How did he know to do that? 
And those are some of the things where you see, well, this is a, actually a right brain skill he's doing that's very, very important to us. So we're going to look at an example in the Bible. It's a picture of transformation of a person's life. So let's go to Luke chapter 19. And this is the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. You've probably heard of it. Up in the tree, right? It's an interesting story that's packed with, with some historical details that are crucial in understanding this and also some brain skills that are on display there. Brain-related stuff that you might miss until someone explains to you how God designed our brains. Okay? You ready for that? Okay. So in Luke 19, it says, He, that's Jesus, entered into Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Okay, let's stop right there. A couple really important details that I've missed most of my Christian life. Especially if you're not a Jew, a Jewish person living in, in, under Roman occupation in the first century. There's some very important things here. Um, because there's not a single word in this story that's, that's meaningless. Everything that's there is like a really good recipe that has every ingredient and no extra ingredient that it doesn't need, okay? One key thing it says about Zacchaeus is that he's a tax collector and he was rich. This is a really important detail to understand this, this scripture. So to put it into context, imagine that the Roman Empire still lived today and was still powerful and let's say the Roman Empire went to, work, went to war against the United States and they defeated us and they came in and occupied our towns and cities with their soldiers. And then like they did in the first century, very quickly they started asking for a chunk of all of our money, of our paycheck every month. Right? That's what happened. And uh, for a Roman citizen and soldier, that was way beneath their level to actually go out and collect taxes. So what they did is they got a couple good volunteers in Skinny Atlas and then Auburn and all the towns around. They'd find some volunteers and say, hey, you're going to be our tax collectors and uh, you'll, make, you'll, you'll make a good living if you do that. And so very quickly, one of your neighbors, let's say five houses down on your block, would start every couple of weeks, knock on your door and demand some money, a percentage of your salary. How do you think that, how do you think that would make you feel? And over time, your house and your cars fell into disrepair because you didn't have enough money even to keep things up. You don't have enough money to fix your leaky roof that started leaking during rainstorms or repair your cars. You're just barely getting by now. Meanwhile, this neighbor of you, of yours, five, five houses down, you just see he has two brand new shiny cars in front of his house and he's putting an addition on the back. And you're just barely making it. Right? This is the situation this story is situated in. So when it says that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he could not because he was a small in stature, what that implies is that the streets were lined with people wanting to see this famous man who was doing miracles, right? And very easily with a shorter man, someone like me could have gone like this and let him out in front, and then I could have gone like this, and he could have seen Jesus easily. But guess what? No one wanted to do that for him because no one liked this person. They hated this person, right? 
I am not opening a space for this man. He's, he made my, I lost my business because of him. And I don't even have a car anymore. And we're barely even able to make it to the end of the month because of this person. I'm not letting him in. Everyone on that street hated him. And he not only collected taxes, but sometimes he would take extra for himself on top and charge them more than they really needed to charge. So not only was he a traitor to his country, he was also a thief. He was a traitor and a thief. You know, he's causing my financial ruin while he is living in luxury now. This was understood by everyone lining the streets waiting for Jesus to walk down the street to see this famous person. Even though it wasn't said, it was very much understood. So, back to the story. Zacchaeus, though, he did not give up, and he had an idea. Let's start, continue uh, reading at verse 4. And it says about Zacchaeus that he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, to see Jesus. For he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, okay, let's, let's push pause again, time out, and ask a question before Jesus says anything. Okay, here's the question. What would the average citizen of this town in this situation think Jesus was going to say to Zacchaeus? You ever thought of that? What do you think he was going to say? Probably something like, you know, Zacchaeus, you traitor. God will judge you for betraying your people and bringing them into poverty. Shame on you, Zacchaeus. That's what the average person on lining the street thinks Jesus is going to say because he stops and Jesus looks up at him before he says anything. And uh, what do you think Zacchaeus expected Jesus to say? Well, as best as I can tell from this story, I don't think uh, Zacchaeus thought Jesus would even give him the time of day. He would just ro- wipe, you know, walk right by. It's like when you see a movie star, you just kind of watch him, you want to see him, but you don't think they'll give you the time of day. So I don't think Zacchaeus expected anything. And uh, from what I can tell, he's just watching from a tree to see this man who was doing miracles and, and was kind of famous. But let's look what actually happens, okay? Continue the story. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Okay? So, now we get to delve into some brain science, okay? It says that he looked up. Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus in the tree. And this is a really crucial part of the story that we also often just read over and don't even think about it as being important. Once we learn a little bit about how God designed our brains, then um, you start picking these kinds of things up in these stories that you didn't pick up before, Okay? So when you read that Jesus looked at Zacchaeus, he looked at him, and what kind of expression did Zacchaeus see on Jesus' face when he was looking up at him? Okay, everyone close your eyes. Put yourself in the place of Zacchaeus. You're up in that tree. You can tell none of the people around you are happy to be with you. They're angry you're there. Jesus is far off, but he's coming closer and closer. You're up in that tree. He's walking closer. And then pretty soon he's right below your tree. And surprising to you, he looks up at you and your eyes meet. 
What do you think was on Jesus' face? What kind of a face is shining on Zacchaeus? Well, open your eyes. What if I were to tell you that the, the human brain was designed for this type of nonverbal re, uh, interaction with people? It was designed with this in mind. Our brains right now in this room, 12 times a second, are scanning our surrounding, looking for faces of people around us who are happy to be with us. We can tell in 12th of a second if someone is happy to be with me or maybe they're not happy to be with me or maybe they're indifferent to me. But our faces are looking for faces that are happy to be with us. It's built into the wiring of our brain. This is the thing that allows infants to grow up and allows their brain to develop or these, these interactions with mother and child going with joyful interactions with our faces lighting up on each other. It's key to our development as babies, but also for the rest of our life. And it's the sense of what I feel, you know, when I can tell that, you're, you're, that from your face, I can tell that you're happy to be with me, that I'm special to you. There's, there's grace coming off of your face for me and that we are connected, and it's good that we are connected. That's what this feels like, and it's called joy. It's called relational joy. The definition of relational joy found by neuroscience from studying the Bible, but we also, from studying brain science, but we also see it in the Bible, is it's what I feel in my body when I can tell from your face and eyes that you're happy to be with me. Pretty simple, huh? But very important. And so what do you think Zacchaeus felt in that moment? He was despised by the crowd. No friendly faces there. But then this man comes that's been doing miracles and healing people. And, and he's walking down the street and he stops for him of all people, for Zacchaeus. He looks at Zacchaeus with a face that Zacchaeus did not expect, I don't think, right? And non-verbally, Jesus is basically saying, his face is transmitting, saying, Zacchaeus, I'm really glad you're with me. I'm glad you're up in that tree. You are special to me. His face was saying that without it before any words came out of his mouth. And then his words echoed what his face was already broadcasting. And he basically says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I want to go to your house and have dinner with you and your friends. And uh, I don't know about you, but my mom told me that I was never, when I was a kid, I wasn't supposed to invite myself over for dinner. <laughs> but Jesus seems to have no problem doing that. And so if we, if we, if we tie this, this interaction back to discipleship, to Christian discipleship, the interesting thing about joy that we find from the brain is that our character grows in the presence of joy, joy meaning we're in the presence of people who are happy to be with us. And in the absence of joy, we're, our character is pretty much stuck. We're not really in a state that will grow much. Uh, as far as character growth in our maturity... And that's one of the main reasons why often some Christ, typical Christian practices we do don't seem to work, because joy functions like a gas tank in a car. If our joy tank is empty, almost nothing works in life, even good things, like reading the Bible, coming to church. If our joy tank is low, our brain is in a state where it can't do much, just like a car that's empty with fuel. That car can't do much if its, if its tank is empty. And so when I was a pastor of discipleship and things seemed to work really well, trainings for some people and not all for others, I was not making sure we're filling everybody's gas tank up before we do anything else. 
And so a church that's aware of joy is a church that's constantly making sure we're filling our gas tanks up, we're letting our faces shine on each other. Practices of gratitude. We've been training some people in your church for the last month, and they're learning some really important practices in gratitude that will actually fill up your joy tank over time. So ask some of the people, your pastors will be sharing this with you. Um, but it's really important to notice here that, that Jesus does not give Zacchaeus a little mini sermon on the Bible. He doesn't give him a little rebuke and tell him what he's doing wrong. Instead, he gives him a burst of joy, right? People were not happy to be with him. That's not joy. But all of a sudden, Jesus comes, and Jesus was very happy to be with Zacchaeus. Boom, right? He went from low joy, no one in that town happy to be with him, to high joy. Jesus, this famous person, all of a sudden is happy to be with me of all people. And so we need also to, to, to clarify, this is very important with joy, is that joy is not happiness, though. Instead, it's happy to be with you-ness. So that doesn't mean that we have to paste joy, to be joyful, we have to paste a, a, a fake plastic Christian smile on our faces. That's not joy. What it means is that we are happy to be together in the good times when we're smiling at, at each other, but we're also happy to be with each other in the hard times. We're happy to be together and stick together in the, in the difficult times and stressful times and exciting times and also the boring times. So high joy community is a community that we're happy to be together in, in the good times and the hard times and every time. Not just happiness. Joy is not happiness. Joy can be happy and delightful. We'll put some pictures on the screen here that'll help you. This is a better definition of joy than any words I could give you. Just sit and enjoy those, those beautiful little faces. Can you feel how happy those little children are to be with their parents and what their parents, like the picture on the left, you can't see the mother there, but imagine what's on the mother's face. They are bouncing happiness and joy off of each other at six times a second. The child on the right, the, that joy is almost at the peak joy. Like that child's gonna need a break pretty soon, some rest. <sighs> a lot of times children will do that. They will break eye contact because they need a little bit of rest and the wise mothers will let their baby rest. And if you let your baby rest for maybe 30 seconds, then boom, that baby's back and wanting to build joy with you again. Very important. So this is a good definition of joy, but let's go to the next slide. What if I were to tell you that this slide is just as joyful as the previous slide? Why is that? These women are obviously, one of the women is sad and another friend is very happy to be with her friend while she's sad. Therefore, this is sad and joyful at the same time. This slide is just as joyful as the previous slide. Okay? So joy can be experienced in, in all big feelings. It can be experienced in joy and success and happiness. But it also can be in all, all of the negative emotions we can feel. We can be joyful and angry. We can be joyful and afraid. We can be joyful and ashamed. We can be joyful and sad. As a matter of fact, we were, as we mature, we were, one of the skills we learn and we teach is how to be joyful in all big and negative emotions. Meaning, we're in big emotions and we're still happy to be together. Okay, very important skill, right brain skill for us to learn if we're gonna love like Jesus loves. He did this all the time. And the joy, need for joy starts as infants. 
early, 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 but we need it for the rest of our lives. We never stop needing joy, okay? And joy is really primarily transmitted from our face, and we see this all over in Scripture. I reread the whole Bible after learning some of these things. And uh, Numbers 6, 24 through 26 is a good example. Let's read it. It's one of the few places where God gives a prayer of blessing to Moses and Aaron. And this is the prayer God gives to them, to pray over the nation, right? He said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. That's the neurological definition of joy that was discovered by Dr. Alan Shore at UCLA over using multiple brain scans for 20 years, like 20 years ago. He just discovered what we've known all along when we read number six. It says, the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Joy is transmitted from God to us through his face. And um, now Zacchaeus is up in a tree. He finds himself looking at the face of God. And whether he realizes it or not, you know, it, that this is God or not, but what do we find in the face of Jesus when we see Jesus in his, in his face? We find the glory of God in his face. Let's read 2 Corinthians 4, 6 together. It says, for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, you know, when he created everything, he commanded that, that very same God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory, God's glory displayed where? In the face of Christ. And so Zacchaeus that day got a big dose of the glory of God when Jesus looked at him, up at him in that tree. And this is really interesting too from a theological perspective, biblical, because in the Old Testament, it says very clearly we cannot see the face of God. Right? Moses asked to see God's face, and God said, you can't see my face and live, but I'll let you see me as I pass by. You remember that story? It's an interesting story in the Bible. Fascinating story. But now Zacchaeus, this thief and this traitor, is looking at the face of God, and he does not die that day. So something different's going on here. Not only did he not die, just the opposite, he started to encounter life that day. And he started to transform. And Zacchaeus was never the same person after that encounter in the tree. And so let's go back to the story. There's a time shift now. You know, Jesus has invited Zacchaeus. You know, I asked him if I can come to your house. So now they've gone to Zacchaeus's house. He's invited all his tax collector friends over. It's probably pretty loud, rowdy. There's eating and drinking and lots of noise, right? And the Jewish people, probably a lot of the people that were lining the streets and wouldn't let him in to see Jesus, they're gathered outside and they're looking in and they're shocked, right? And, and so here's what it says in, in, in Luke 19. It says, and when they saw it, when the people outside were looking in and saw what Jesus did, going to Zacchaeus' house, it said they all grumbled he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You know, that thief that caused me to lose my business and then my house, that thief, that traitor, why is Jesus even giving him the time of day? You know, what this Jesus guy's doing makes no sense, right? And they kind of have a point, right? It makes no sense at all unless you, until you see the results 
of the joy of Jesus' face and the change that made on him. Because the negative comments that were of the people outside, they got back to Zacchaeus somehow in that party and, and then listened to Zacchaeus' response to the grumbling people outside. Okay? Back to the scripture. Verse 8. And it says, And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, anything, I restore it fourfold. Hmm. So he's put some, some flesh into this, right? And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is transforma transformation. Notice there was no list of do's and don'ts for Zacchaeus. There were no sermons involved, no Bible, no praying. Instead, he had a face-to-face -face encounter with the living God in human flesh, and that face said to him, Zacchaeus, you are special to me. And then Zacchaeus sat down and ate a meal with him and his friends in his house. And uh, what do you think the people outside that were grumbling thought now when they heard what Zacchaeus said? If I was one of the people, I would think, okay, I lost two of both of my cars. My roof is leaking. We have damage. And look at, and he took 40% of every paycheck for the last three years. 40%, let's add that, times four. That obviously, obviously had a big impact on the people out there as well, right? Hmm, fourfold. That's a lot of money. Our churches were meant to be high joy places where our faces shine on each other where we're constantly happy to, be, happy to be together and that we're glad to even to go through hard times and suffering together because it's better together than alone. But we also share our, our successes together and we rejoice. We laugh together and we weep together. That's very high joy, okay? Um, I was driving down the highway in, in Colorado during rush hour. You know, they have these big signs that they put different messages on. And one time it said, you know, phones down, heads up. And that's pretty good driving advice, and it's even better parenting advice. You know, these phones we have are, are one of the ways, too, we can rob the people around us from joy. I often drive by our high school, and kids are sitting in circles having lunch. In the old days, we'd be talking, and a lot of the kids are doing this as they're eating their lunch in a group of people. Sometimes we have a park near our house that we walk by and there's these little kids just rumping, running and jumping and being crazy and it's absolutely beautiful. And there's a bench that the parents are on and sometimes I look at the bench and their faces are glowing. Other times I look at the bench and their parents are like this. But those little children, those little toddlers, their brains 12 times a second are, are looking, is mommy happy to be with me? Is daddy happy to be with me? Is grandpa happy to be with me? And it's almost as, it's as important to them as food. It's good for us to know that, okay? And so as we make our communities grow in joy, intentionally building joy, you can build joy on Sundays together. As we start building joy in small groups, in your families, in your neighborhoods, you will be very surprised at the changes you see in the people around you and the changes you see in yourself as you intentionally build joy. Zacchaeus saw the face of God he felt the warmth of God's face and his glory shining through him. 
and, and the joy of Jesus to be with him, and he was never the same person again. That is the power of joy. Let's pray. Father, how we long to feel the warmth of your face shining on us, of your delight in us. We also want your face to shine through us and onto our children and our spouses and our family and the people around us. We are so thankful for how happy Jesus was to be with Zacchaeus and that he has that same joy, even right now, even today in this room, he has that same happiness and gladness to be with us too. And may your joy overflow in this place in Grace Chapel and may it spread throughout the whole state of New York and through our country. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.